The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we? Very well. Very well. Look at the oh, mate. We've got we've got a crowd over here who's really into it this morning. Uh, if you're new, my name's Kylum, uh, lead pastor here at LCC. We are in a series called Reconstructing Faith, and as a as a church, we're trying to I guess explore some of the big questions um, that not only those who aren't Christians have, but those of us who are Christians have. And one of the big questions that all of us ask, and probably will continue to ask, is around the concept of suffering. How can we reconcile a good, loving, powerful God and the experiences in which we have in this world which are hard and difficult? Uh, I think we'll all acknowledge that to some degree we all suffer. That everyone in this room suffers to some degree, to some nature, some of us more than others, and some of us will suffer in the future and we will experience difficulty and hardship. And this has been a question that has been raised uh, from the the very, very beginning of time. Uh, We need to explore uh, what the Bible has to say about that, what the Christian worldview has to say about that, And we're going to do that today, but I also just want to acknowledge the fact that intellectual and philosophical answers don't actually suffice. In part of my journey, uh, this was a big question for me, and I needed to have some type of worldview construction that would allow me to understand and reconcile uh, what I saw. And we're going to look at uh, three worldviews that I think are the most common that are given to humanity, and then we want to give the Christian one, but I think ultimately... What we need to acknowledge is that suffering is not just something that is philosophical or intellectual. It is very, very personal. And I believe that the Bible, the Christian worldview, offers us more than just answers. It offers a friend. It offers a person who can help us in our suffering. So let's start with just some philosophical, more of the intellectual stuff, and then let's go to more of that that personal stuff. Uh, The worldview that is often given to us, I think there are kind of three major categories that we are presented in this culture in which we live, in this time, in this space. The first is that suffering is an illusion. This is a a common uh, worldview, particularly within the East. Uh, In Buddhism, based on the Four Noble Truths, uh, suffering is simply an illusion. You only appear to suffer. It's not actually real. The only reason that you appear and you feel suffering is because you are, you are too attached to this world. And so within, say, the Buddhist kind of worldview, because suffering is an illusion, you are essentially to ignore it and separate yourself from the world and the attachments to the world. We are to ignore suffering because it's not what it appears to be. We are to separate and rid ourselves of our de- desires and connections to this world. The problem with this is that none of us who feel suffering would say that this is an illusion. This feels very real. To come to each other and say, that's not real pain, is unhelpful. When we lose a loved one, when we go through difficulty, I can't think of of a more uh, hurtful response than, that's not real. And the Bible wants to say, Our pain is real. 
Second is that suffering is deserved. Even some within the Christian sphere would say that really, suffering is just because you did A plus B and now you get C. And it kind of, uh, it kind of equates, the, the amount of suffering that you get is with what you did, so that the way out of suffering in this worldview is to just be better and do better. You see this less in Buddhism, but more in Hinduism. Hinduism says that your suffering is simply deserved based on the karmic cycle of life. The suffering that you experience in this life is due to how you lived in your past life and the only way to rid yourself of this suffering is to endure it and to do better. So in other words, again, it's an escapism, but it's from a morality point of view. It's like do better and you will get better. But many of us know that we have experienced suffering not at the hands of anything that we have done. In fact, it's been at the hands of what others have done. And lastly, there is a sense in which suffering is meaningless. And this is what we get in our, pretty much in our current climate, which is that humanism, atheism kind of worldview. Which, if you take that to its literal conclusion, you have to say, you must say, that all suffering is meaningless. It is just a nature of the beast. Richard Dawkins, in his book, A River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life, says this, that the the life that we live, the world that we live and experience has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. As I was on my journey of faith and asking some of this question, I realized that this path of atheism where we take God and extract God out of the equation did not help me at all. Because suffering still exists even if you remove God from the equation. In fact, what it did was, is it told me, facts don't care about your feelings. Suck it up. Get over it. Just is what it is. Bad luck. Cosmic bad luck. And so a response from an atheistic worldview is to put up with it. Endure it. It is what it is. Do all you can to avoid it. Um, make as much money as you can, get the most comfortable house you can, have the most comfortable experiences you can, and kind of just get by. And as I personally looked at these things, all of these did not seem to help me at all. That suffering is an illusion, that suffering is deserved, or that suffering is meaningless, none of those seemed to help me wrestle with the concept of suffering. I think you would agree that all of those are not good news. None of those actually help us in our suffering. So, the question then comes, well, what does the Christian worldview offer us that is different? And I want to take you to a story. We're actually going to go through this in John 11. So if you do have your Bibles, uh, you can open them up there. If you've got your screens, open up to John 11. This is a story which I think in it, encapsulates so much of what the Bible as a whole tells us about suffering and what it actually uh, kind of formulates as a worldview of how we should see and view suffering. And I think in this story, we have basically these big overarching categories that are both macro, they're kind of intellectual, philosophical, but as you kind of enter into the story, you see that these things are actually micro, That it's not just transcendent, it's imminent. It's something that is actually very, very real and needed. 
First thing I think this story tells us, and I think the Bible would say overall, is that God is good, loving His children. I often say that when everything is going well, we often forget God. When things go bad, we doubt God. See, when my life is going swimmingly, I don't question God's love. But when I'm in the pit, when I'm down at the darkest, that's where I'm wondering, does he love, not just in general, not just as a philosophical or intellectual idea and concept, does God love me? And the Bible wants to say God is good and he loves his children. So this story starts off and it says in verse 3, So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. This is Lazarus. This is a friend that Jesus loves. And verse 5 tells us, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. There is a sense in which the Bible wants to hold up God is a God of love. And that's why we struggle to put together, well, if he's loving, why this? How this? And I think it's a reasonable question to ask, but the Bible wants to keep keep saying over and over, over and over, God loves his children. God is good. God is kind. It goes on to say, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that seem like love? So it says from the beginning, he loves, he loves, he loves. He hears there's a problem and he does not engage. Is that not what we feel? Some of my story, some of you know it, some of you don't. 2014, I had a a massive mental and emotional breakdown where I was literally in a bed for over nine months. About 12 months, I couldn't get out of bed. Struggle with anxiety, massively struggle with anxiety. I won't go into all the details, but in my moment of struggle, I finally asked this question. You love me, but you have not engaged me now. And here is Jesus, and he delights. Why, why would you delay? If you loved, why would you do this? We even know from the stories in the, in the New Testament that Jesus has healed people from a distance. He doesn't even have to be present. He can just say it and speak it. Yet he is not there. A couple of points I think I want to make here. According to the biblical account, you are not alone in that question. The Bible offers endless amounts of people that God loves who ask the question. This is one of the things I love about the Bible. It is so raw and so honest. There's an entire book called Lamentations. The book of the Psalms, there are some that are like high-end, like worship praise Psalms, but then there are also Psalms that are all around the struggle and the wrestle. So when you and I ask these questions and we have these deep things that come from here, you are not alone. The Bible gives you permission to ask those questions. But we have examples where God does not meet the need. And in these examples... It does not lead the people in this book to ultimately end at the point where they don't believe God loves them. So they are there as an example for us that we can express, but we need to follow their example and see that just because we suffer doesn't mean we have to come to the conclusion that God is not loving. For others that have gone before us have not come to that conclusion. They still hold on to the God that loves them. Paul, like if you're going to pick a New Testament hero, 
He cries out to God to heal him, to take this thorn from his side, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he does not. Yet that does not lead Paul eventually to go to the point where he says, well, therefore God does not love me. So in these examples, which give us permission to ask the question, keep digging into their life and what helped them to cling on to the truth that God is loved despite their suffering. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, in his book, it's called A Grief Observed. He lost his wife to cancer. He wrote this, he said, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to belief that such dreadful, uh, of such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. C.S. Lewis has a way with words, and the Bible is giving us story after story, example after example, that while we suffer, God continues to be good. God continues to love, and I think this story will help us to see how. So number one, God is good, loving His children. Number two, God is gracious, permitting us to grieve. The story continues, and Lazarus has been dead uh, in the tomb for four days. And when Martha finally comes to Jesus, it says this in verse 20. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But, look at this, Mary remained seated in the house. If you know anything about these ladies, you remember that they had a previous encounter with Jesus where Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha was busying herself in the home. There is a sense in which Mary is not yet ready to get up and go and see Jesus because she is what? Grieved. She's not ready. I think sometimes when we go through difficulties, we can put endless amounts of pressure on ourselves because we know theological truths to be at a place where we're not yet ready to be. And the Bible says it's okay to grieve, it's okay to hurt to linger. In this story, Mary does not get uh, rebuked by Jesus for not just coming and believing. God gives us permission to cry, to not hurry ourselves to be past the pain because we know the intellectual answer. In fact, I think Christians too often are trying to move themselves too fast past the pain because we know the end of the story. We kind of think Intellectually, well, we should just be okay with this. And the Bible says, no, 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 it's okay to grieve. And grieve we must. So Mary stays at home. She can't come to Jesus. She's not ready to face him yet. And Martha goes, and then Martha has the question that we would all ask, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not be dead. Have you asked that? Like, if you were just here... I wouldn't have this. If you had just acted the way I know you can, this pain wouldn't be mine right now. But even there, she has faith. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you see in Martha, we have this example of both grief and faith. The Bible doesn't pit these two together as if they are opposites, as if they cannot work together. Sometimes in the Christian world, we will pit your grief as though it is an example of you not having enough faith in God. <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced that, but that's not how the Bible treats grief. That's not how the Bible treats pain. The Bible doesn't say, just get over it. 
No, the Bible says it's real. It's not an illusion. It's not nothing. It is something. And so the Bible says that your pain is real and you are allowed to experience it and you are allowed to express it and not at a risk of of sort of uh, ostracizing your own faith in God. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again like a a good Jewish woman. She knows that there is a, a resurrection at the end and so she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Lord, what about now? How does that future resurrection help my present problem? I'm grieving here now. As we continue in the story, I'm going to skip over a little bit. We're going to come back and finish on the part that's in between that. But it goes on, it tells us that God is gentle pursuing us in our pain. 28 says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he is calling for you. Do not overlook that line. The teacher is here. The one who you sat at his feet, the one who you know, he is here. He is not rebuking you. He is not forcing you. He is not saying, have more faith. He is not saying, why are you grieving? No, he is gentle. He's like, hey, is Is she ready? Can I come and talk with her and be with her now? And then look, she comes and says, same thing, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Nowhere in this story, three times Jesus has asked this question, and nowhere in this story does he ever rebuke. And I think, because what Jesus is trying to show us, is that the safest place to bring your pain is Jesus. He is gentle. Matthew eleven twenty eight tells us, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary. That is, all who are trying to be self-righteous and trying to work your way up to God and you can't and is getting exhausted. We're going to love that noise all day. Those who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden are those who are going through difficult, dark, trying things and their souls are wounded. Come, come to me. For I am gentle. Again, part of my story, I didn't know how to talk to God about my problems. I knew how to talk to God about all the good things. I knew how to thank God. I didn't know how to cry to God. I hadn't had anything really in my life to cry to God about. And now it was my turn. And what the Bible says is it's, it's okay to come and bring your pain to gentle one. Lowly one. Lowly means accessible. Present. Talk to me. Dane Altland says, men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ, but he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he being so holy is therefore 
of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and sufferers and not able to bear with them. But here he says, no, I am meek, I am gentle, my nature is gentle and my temperament is gentle. Come to me. Jesus is allowing Martha to come to him and he is on the pursuit to Mary who is hurting and wounded. Number four, God is compassionate, confronting, uh, comforting us in our suffering. Earlier this, this year, uh, Fletch had to learn three verses. Uh, was it to get a milkshake? What was it? You got something? Can't remember. Anyway, he's like, Dad, if I, if I can quote three verses of the Bible, um, I'll get this. Okay, we can't remember. Anyway, him and I, we'll talk later. We'll work that out. Um, so he was like, what three verses? So I was like, well, everyone knows John 3.16. He didn't, but that's cool. Uh, so we worked on that. So we're like, okay, John 1 1. So I just stuck with John. I'm like, John 1 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Great. John 3 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And then we went to John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. <laughs> Two words, just remember them. And it was like this, this sense of like, uh, it's, the, it's the easiest, shortest verse in the Bible, but if you look at the verse, it's powerful. Multiple times in this story, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. After that, again, 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. The most common emotional term ascribed to Jesus in all of the Bible is compassion. Some versions and translations will say pity. So if, that's, if you've got one of those translations, don't, don't read it as, as we understand pity. Read it as compassion. And after everything that it says that when he is moved to compassion, he always acts. Jesus here weeps. Does this make you ask a question? He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that because he's the God man. He knows he's going to do that. He knows he's going to sort out the problem essentially. So why cry? Why does he weep? Rebecca McCollin says, Jesus is no remote deity. Watching suffering from a distance, he is the God who inhabits our suffering. In fact, we looked at last week, as we looked at the Bible, we looked at the fact that this, this book of Isaiah uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls had all of these, like, it was just so accurate and whatever. That, that, that book of Isaiah, right in like one of the key chapters, Isaiah 53, which is one of the messianic prophecies pointing to the fact that this Jesus would come, listen to the words it would speak about this Jesus who would come. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53 says that he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with and by his wounds we are healed. What is so important about that verse is we we. We often as Christians, if you're in the room, you're Christian, you get this and you think about this and you say, yes, this is true. When Jesus is on the cross, he is bearing our sin. He takes all of our sin, past, present, 
future and takes it all of him. What we forget to acknowledge is that he does that also with our suffering. It talks about pain and sorrow, not just sin. It is a grander picture that Jesus is taking on himself, bearing on himself, not just the sin, but our pain. B.B. Warfield says the emotion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus is compassion. He did not simply operate in deeds of compassion, but felt the inner turmoils and rolling emotions of pity or compassion toward the unfortunate. He hears the pleas of the blind men for sight, or the lepers for cleansing, or he sees without hearing any plea the distressed widow. I don't have all the answers as to why suffering. But I can tell you this, that Jesus wants to enter into your suffering. He will cry with you. Have we heard the exhortation in the Bible that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. Why? Because that's our God. Something about grief, something about suffering and entering to suffering does something about increasing intimacy. Again, if I can go back to my story. There is something that I have in my heart towards my wife, not just because we got married and have started a life together and we've bought a house and we're having you know, camping trips. All of those things are good. All of those things are great. There is a different level of intimacy with my wife who picked me up every single day and dragged me to my bed, who cleaned up all around me, who, while she was pregnant with our fourth child, did not abandon, did not whinge, but actually entered into my pain and said, I'm with you, I'm not leaving you, and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to carry you. I have a deeper love and a deeper intimacy for my wife than any cool experience could ever give me. There is something, there is something unique about suffering which allows you a different depth of intimacy. Some of you know this. You have friends who don't mind doing all of these things with you, but when you need them, there's few. And it's those few that you go, they are my friends. Because anyone can come camping, anyone can go out for a drink, anyone can go to the movies. Not everyone can sit with me, cry with me, Feed me, love me. Jesus is living with these women, weeping with these women. See, unlike Hinduism, which sees suffering as a deserved cosmic punishment proportionate to one's previous sin, the Bible is offering a different perspective. You see, in John 9, when there is a blind man and The disciples ask, well, who sinned? Is it him or is it his parents? Like, which one sinned? There is this view that all uh, all suffering is proportionate to one's sin. And God goes, this is not some algorithm that magically just works. Suffering is real. This is real people. Real pain. And he enters into the pain. Number five, God is great bringing life from death. 
Verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Now I get that that's one of those, oh yeah, stories. But for those of us who are Christians, we believe the stories that this happened. And here is one of the great promises that Christians hold on to, is that Jesus is always bringing life from death. He cannot do anything other than that because he himself is life. So he is constantly bringing life and taking death and making life. This is the promise that we see ultimately in Jesus, that he is bringing joy out of sorrow. He is bringing light out of darkness. He is bringing sunshine out of the gloom. This is the promise that Jesus is giving us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about Jesus' resurrection, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This doesn't mean that death and suffering stop. What it means is, is that they are taken into our victory. So Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and according to His purpose. We love that. Why? Because we need that. That is the hope that this suffering is not meaningless, purposeless. It is not basically in this sort of cosmic uh, randomness. No, God is somehow involved and He is bringing life out of darkness, life out of death. And so we cannot see this, right? When you are laying in a pool of vomit, passed out and you have to get on the phone and call your wife to come and pick you up because you can't drive a car. You do not think that or feel that. But it is true that even in that dark moment, even in that trying moment, God is going to bring life. This is the hope that the Christian worldview brings. There is no hope in an illusion. There is no hope in a deserved karmic mantra. There is no hope in a meaningless suffering. But in the Christian worldview, there is hope because the King of Kings who we worship is intimately involved and is bringing life out of death. It's not because there's no design or no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Your suffering is not meaningless. Your suffering is not purposeless. Your suffering is not hopeless. I don't know what the answer is, but I know what it can't be. It can't be that God doesn't love you and doesn't have a plan for our suffering. He does. And for many of us who've been through difficult things, it's not until you get to the other side that you look back and you go, I see. I see. Oh, you, you did this and that and this and that. In the moment, we hold on to it. Look throughout the whole story over and over and over again. This is what Jesus is getting to. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Jesus said to them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus has died and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. 
But let us go to him. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 40, Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 42, I knew that you were always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed him. There is a sense in which God is saying to us in our suffering, trust me. Trust me. How can you trust God? Well, this is my final point. Because God is glorious, knowing our ultimate need. This is how Jesus responds to Mary when she is asking the question. Jesus says uh, to Martha, Martha, your greatest need is not that I resurrect your brother and that he be back. That is not your greatest need. It feels like it. But it's actually not. There is something greater that you need. There's something more, something grander, something deeper that you need. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Lord, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. See, Jesus doesn't come and just fix the problem on her terms. In many ways, what he does is he kind of expands the problem and says, actually, there's a deeper problem. There's a bigger problem that if I don't fix, it won't solve the small problems. Martha, what you need, what you need, is you need me. You need me. That is the ultimate need. And this, at first glance, does not seem helpful, but if we think it through, I think we can see that this actually is good news. I have four children. I've taken them to get jabs before. And if you've ever had a baby that you go on and they get the little, well, it's not little, the needle. <laughs> they put it into their arms like they look at you with tearful, you horrible, horrible, abusive parent. How could you let me go through this? And why do we do it? Well, we give them the needle because we're actually, the, the small amount of pain now is to save them later, right? That's kind of the principle behind it. Uh, we're going to allow you to stumble as you try and learn to walk. We're not always going to hold your hand every single time because you need to learn how to walk. And if you have boys, that's lots of teeth going through lips and all sorts of things. But what we ask and what I think Martha is asking is, is this worth the pain? And Jesus says, if you get me, it is. And in order to give you this life, I'm going to enter into ultimate suffering. In order that you may have life, I will go and die. This is one thing I learned about my exploration of faith, is I went through Islam, read the Quran, Allah does not love you. Even if you obey and do all the five pillars, you do everything, you pray your five times a day, you can still get to the end and Allah can still reject you with your good record. The only verse in the Quran that says that Allah loves you is after you have loved Him. And even then, it may, He may not love you. Hinduism, Buddhism, there's no help. There's nothing. Atheism, suck it up. Get over it. Facts don't care about your feelings. In the Bible... God 
puts on flesh, enters into the world as us, and then goes and gets scars like us. This is the only worldview where the one who is good and kind and powerful comes to us and says, trust me, why? Because I too have scars. I have suffered for you. I have died for you. As the band come up, all other worldviews are telling us to escape suffering. Whether it's through enlightenment, whether it's through morality and being better, or whether it's seeking a comfortable life. And I think the Christian response says, suffering is not something that we escape. It's real. Suffering is not something that we have to try and work out what the algorithm is as to how much sin caused what. As if we have deserved everything we have experienced. And the Bible tells us that suffering is not meaningless. And so the goal of the Bible is not to say, escape. The goal of the Bible is to say, embrace the one who knows. Who feels your pain. Who has been rejected by all and was killed by his friends for you. So that he could come and bear his scars and say, I am with you. Helping you. I Trust me, I can redeem this and bring life from this. I can bring light to this. I can, because I was dead. I was crucified, and I defeated Satan, sin, death, suffering. So not only can you come to me and have the compassion, you know, I've proven to you, this doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to control you and dominate you, because my life is lived for you, and I will bring life to your suffering. And so, I think as Dojkowski said, I think it's a good line, it says, no other God has scars. There is no other God in any ancient writings who has scars. But as Thomas went and saw Jesus, Jesus shows him his scars, Jesus comes to us and says, see my scars, that's how much I love you. Amen? I know that doesn't answer everything. But it was a huge help for me, and I pray it's helped you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.